And you could say this is one of the key threads that runs from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. So many texts are given to this call and to this reality that God is worthy of our worship. We see so many examples of, of false and true worship throughout Scripture. In fact, we're confronted right away in Genesis 3 with the false worship of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As you move through the, the timeline of history in the Old Testament, you come across the children of Israel and the golden calf incident at the foot of Mount Sinai. Along with these glimpses of false worship, we see examples of good and right and true fitting worship. Like Noah coming off the ark after being rescued through the ark from the worldwide flood and offering to the Lord praise received and welcomed by the Lord. Or like Abraham with Isaac on Mount Moriah as he took his most precious beloved son and willingly was ready to sacrifice him to the Lord. Or like Thomas in John 21 when he finally sees the resurrected Christ and though doubting and unbelieving before sees him and says, my Lord and my God, the heart of worship. Or like the early church in Acts 2 that met together and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread together and to prayer, to true worship. Or like the heavenly congregation in Revelation 5 and or 4 and 5 and 7 when we get a glimpse into the eternal worthiness of God proclaimed by the heavenly congregation. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Not only are we given examples of true and false worship, but throughout Scripture we're given commands about worship that call us to give singular, soul, exclusive praise and glory and honor to God. We're told in John's first letter to keep ourselves from anything that would hinder that, keep ourselves from idols. We're told in Hebrews 12 to worship the Lord our God in reverential awe of Him. We're told the, the methods that should be used in worshiping God in books like Ephesians where we're called to commit ourselves to the word and to rejoice together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we're full of the spirit of God. We're told throughout scripture why we should worship. We're told of the grace of God that allows us to worship, that frees us from our heart idolatry of worshiping other things and to worship God alone. We're even given the heavenly vision, the, the eternal hope of Revelation 21 and 22 when the new Jerusalem comes and descends and lands upon and rests upon the new earth in the new world, the recreated world. And what's the central feature of Revelation 21 and 22? It's the, the union and the fellowship and the, the worship of God's people with God. It says that God will dwell with men and men will dwell with God in perfect harmony. That which was lost in the first garden will be restored in the last garden. And there will be perfect unity and worship of our great God in eternity. This worship of the real and true God is a major thread tying all of Scripture together. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4 that God is himself seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. We have the privilege this morning to be encouraged and exhorted by one of the most surprising, shocking, and in her culture, shameful acts of worship. That's Mary of Bethany. I went back, I just did a quick word search on sermons that I preached at Newton Bible Church over the years and typed in the word worship and just saw what came up. And, and it has not been long between sermon titles that have in their title the word worship. This is a major concern in Scripture. A major concern for the church. You gathered this morning to worship God. So Mary of Bethany shows us a good example of worship. The last time we saw her, she was weeping at her brother's tomb. She was consumed with grief about his death. Just moments before Jesus called him forth from the grave, she was weeping there. After the resurrection of Lazarus, we don't know much of what happened, but we presume that Jesus left quickly. 
What we're told next is that the the raising of Lazarus provoked the, the ire and the condemnation of the chief priests, and they determined to kill Jesus. And so Jesus left quickly and went to a town called Ephraim. And as we finished up chapter 11 last week, we were told by John that thousands of Jewish travelers were coming to Jerusalem. I about said descending upon Jerusalem. They're actually ascending to Jerusalem. It's up in the hills. But they're coming to Jerusalem, and John told us there's, there's one question on their mind which is quite astounding because this is the high and holy feast of the Jewish calendar. This is their Christmas, their New Year's. This is their big celebration. They look forward to this for months on end. And there's one thing they're thinking about when they come to Jerusalem, and that is, will Jesus of Nazareth come? Now, they thought through that, and they thought any man in his right mind would not come. He who had been condemned would not bring himself into the viper's nest, waiting for them to sting and kill him. But Jesus is no ordinary man. Maybe, they thought, he will come. Indeed, he does come. That's what we read about in John 12. We're going to read the the first 11 verses of John 12 this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So very much here to learn about worship, all wrapped up in one verse, verse 3. But before we get that, let's consider the context. What's going on here? We'll talk more about this as we come to the triumphal entry next week, because there's a lot of background needed to make sense of what's going on in John 12. But These Jews are gathering. You remember what the Passover was about, what the feast celebrated? It was to remind them of their exodus from slavery in Egypt. So you can imagine they are remembering how God supernaturally intervened when they were under the thumb of another nation. How when they come together, their national zeal is pretty high. Desiring for God one day to do this again. The Romans were on high alert because they knew this was a notorious time for uprisings and disgruntled Jews to come against Rome. As these Jews gather, the city of Bethany lies just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And John tells us that there was a dinner held in Jesus' honor and that that was just six days before the Passover. So without telling you the math, just let me help you know, this is Saturday night. Jesus is going to die on Friday of the next week. This is the Saturday night before he gives his life for us. As we come to this text, you must know that John 11 precedes it on purpose, that Jesus had given this irrefutable sign of his Messiahship, that he is the one sent from heaven, and that is the raising of Lazarus. That had happened some six to eight weeks before he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We don't know how long it was. We're guessing. There's no time markers, but it was probably six to eight weeks before now. The Jewish leaders have been looking for a way to arrest him and to kill him. They have a warrant out for his arrest. And while they've been doing that, beloved, he has been away from them planning for this very moment. So if you have any thought in your head about Jesus getting caught up in some murderous plot in which he ended up on the cross all by accident and woke up to himself and said, what is going on here? You're missing the gospel. Jesus knew what was happening. He intended for this to happen. They are still culpable in their wicked actions to put Jesus on the cross, the most sinful act of human history. But Jesus knew 
what he was doing. They intended for evil. He intended for good, the good of our redemption through his death. We learn from the other gospel records that Jesus left his hideout in Ephraim. That was about 18 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. He had been hiding out there for the last five to six weeks. He left there and he headed north into Samaria. As he headed north into Samaria, there's this interaction between him and a Samaritan town, the one where James and John say, can we call down fire and get rid of this place? That incident. As they go through there, they eventually cross over the Jordan River over to the east side of the river and they join up with a group of pilgrims who refuse to go to Samaria lest they be soiled on the way to the Passover feast because those wicked Samaritans are filthy and unclean. And so they cross over the river, they come down the Jordan Rift, the Jordan River Valley, on the east side of the river. So Jesus crosses the river, joins up with a pilgrim band. Hundreds of folks making their way together, camping out together along the way. It's a joyous occasion as they celebrate together and anticipate coming to Jerusalem for the feast. They come into Jericho, and you remember Zacchaeus encounters Jesus here, or Jesus encounters Zacchaeus better. Also, blind Bartimaeus calls out for mercy from the Lord and is healed. They leave from Jericho. They ascend the steep ascent of about 800 feet in altitude from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as they're coming along the way to Jerusalem, it's Friday afternoon. It's almost sundown. Sabbath starts at sundown. So at sundown, you need to be where you are going to be for Sabbath because you can't travel very far on Sabbath day. These pilgrims are headed to Jerusalem. They'll find their lodging. They'll enjoy Sabbath, and then they will get ready for Passover week. As they approach Jerusalem, Jesus and his 12 peel off into Bethany. And they head into Bethany, and they send this pilgrim troop with a very important message into Jerusalem that answers the question of John 11. Jesus is here. Jesus came. He's here at the feast, and he's in Bethany with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he probably will be here on Sunday night, or on Sunday morning. We read, this is why I read through verse 11, because several of them go out Saturday night to see him. Once Sabbath is over on sundown Saturday evening, the Jews are notorious for celebrating and rejoicing, having a feast together to end Sabbath and rejoice in a new week. And many of the Jews leave Jerusalem to go see Jesus in Bethany, but not just to see Jesus. Who else do they want to see? They want to see Lazarus. Why? Because they've heard that this man who was dead four days in the tomb, whose stench of his body still sticks in the nostrils of those who were there, has been raised back to life by Jesus. This work of Christ to orchestrate this is a display of his eternal wisdom and his sovereign power. In Bethany on that Saturday night, the text tells us, then they throw a feast to honor Jesus and also to honor Lazarus, and rightly so. They haven't seen him since he was here and raised Lazarus last from the dead. They haven't seen him since then. Here he is. Now let's throw a feast for him and rejoice in all that he has done. Notice how John in two verses tells us about all three siblings. He tells us first about Martha. What was she doing? She was serving. You could have guessed that without reading it. This is who Martha is. She's a nuts and bolts kind of lady. She is the one who worries about the details. She's a constant servant of others. And this is not a knock in the text. She's not reprimanded for that here by John or by Jesus. She is showing her love for our Lord as she saw her brother raised to life and was convinced that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is how she shows her love for him. She serves him as a servant at the meal. We're also told that Lazarus was at the meal. That's important because it's obviously not in Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house. In fact, Mark tells us that it's at Simon the leper's house. He tells us Lazarus is there because you need to know that Jesus is the main attraction, but Lazarus is the second main attraction. Everyone wants to see Lazarus, this man raised back to life. And then he tells us about Mary. And Mary does what Mary is so prone to do. You remember Luke 10? When Jesus was traveling, they invited Jesus into their home to have hospitality, eat a meal, and stay with them. You remember what Mary was doing? 
She was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him teach. Martha was scurrying around, getting everything ready, trying to prepare a meal and make the house ready for them to stay. And she complained and said, Lord, tell my sister to do something. I'm doing everything around here. He says, Martha, you are anxious for many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary is doing the one needful thing. Here we see that come out of her yet again, this worship of our Lord. And John does not give us too many details. He gives us this succinct description in one verse, this amazing act of worship. Jesus is reclined at the table. The Jewish custom of eating that day would be a U-shaped table around which you, it would be a foot or so off of the ground. You would lay on the ground with your elbow on the floor, held up by pillows and cushions, your head towards the table, your feet reclined backwards towards away from the table. And so Mary comes to Jesus at the table and she anoints him with this amazingly expensive perfume. From her example of worship of our Lord, I want to point to you six marks of true worship. How can we be encouraged and exhorted in our own worship by looking at the example of Mary? And I think this is John's main point in telling us this story. It's, it's also to lead us along in understanding Judas's betrayal. But it follows John 11 and the story of Lazarus' raising because he wants you to see the connection between the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and the worship of Jesus. Mary is compelled to worship Christ. That's our first mark of true worship. It's compelled. There's a magnetic force of worth and value and glory that draws Mary to Jesus. She's like a bee to a flower. She can't resist going. She must come to Jesus and worship him in extravagance in any way she can to honor him. Having not seen him for so long, she now comes to him for this act of worship. I don't think it's a far stretch to think of her as contemplating this for the last six weeks. I don't think I'm reading too much into the text. I know I'm reading some into it because the text doesn't say how long she thought about this. By the way, there's another account in which Jesus is anointed by a woman, and it's in Luke 7. She's, he, she is a woman of sin, and she comes and sees Jesus, and she weeps over him because she realizes she has forgiveness through him, and she wets his feet with her tears, and then she wipes it with her hair, and then she anoints him with ointment. That's different than this account, and I think that account was spontaneous. She heard he was in town. She realized and recognized in light of her sinfulness, he was her only hope, and she worshiped in penitence, in repentance. Here we have Mary who has thought about this. This is premeditated. This is contemplated. She's mulled over. What kind of God is it who comes and raises someone who's been dead four days? What kind of man is it who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Having contemplated that, she is compelled in this moment, gripped by the reality of Jesus to worship him. This compelling aspect of Mary's worship is really seen when you contrast her with Judas. I'll talk more about this in a minute, but just think of Judas. You know the story well enough to know what he does here. Judas, in this moment, feels gypped by Jesus. He feels completely, totally, absolutely abandoned by Christ. That's because he had a wrong view of the Messiah. He, he came to follow Jesus because he viewed the Messiah as one who would set up a kingdom here on earth, overthrow Rome, and he was all about knowing and enjoying the honor and the wealth and the power of the kingdom of the king. And so he cozied himself up to who he presumed to be the best option for the king to overthrow Rome, and he was all in this for the power, the money, and the prestige. And that has been slowly being chipped away at through Jesus' ministry as he sees one example after another. This guy is not about that. And here he comes, this amazing expression of worship, this expensive expression of worship. And Judas realizes this guy's not about the money. He's not about the power. He's not about the prestige. He's not about overthrowing Rome. And he feels gypped. He is betrayed by Jesus and he's looking for a way to return the favor. 
You really can't expect heartfelt worship from a man who feels no indebtedness to Christ. You can't expect someone who is mad at Jesus to worship Jesus. On the exact flip opposite end of that spectrum, you have Mary. So enamored with Jesus, so drawn to Jesus by what he is and has done. By this act of worship, she is saying, I understand he is the one sent from heaven, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he, as she saw with her own eyes, can guarantee life, overthrow death. She's fully convinced and committed to him as Savior and Lord. I don't know what Mary believes at this point. I don't know what she fully knows. Does she understand that Jesus is about to give his life? Does she know that in six days he'll hang on a cross, dying in her place? Does she know that that death will not be permanent, that he'll rise again from the dead in three days? He said these things openly, clearly, obviously. But his own disciples didn't get it until they saw him resurrected. So I don't know if she got it or not. There's indications in the text that she did. Just on a side note, an interesting note, she's not in any of the gospel accounts as being at the the scene of the grave or at the scene of the resurrection. She, She... apparently believed or is just missed in the narrative. I don't know. But whatever it is, whatever she knew or believed, she knew God had sent Jesus, that he was God in the flesh, that somehow, some way, he was going to save her from his sin, that her own death was going to be overcome by this Jesus, that he indeed was mighty to save. And so from the depths of her soul, She is compelled with this explosion of worship. This act of worship is the gushing forth of a heart that is compelled by the greatness of Jesus. You see, worship in spirit and truth is worship that always starts with God, never with us. Worship is that which is drawn out of us by the great value and worthiness of God. It's never something we drum up in our own emotions or in our own feelings. True worship is not something we stir within us with, with music and lights and ambiance and settings and scenes and atmosphere. True worship is always that which starts with God. It's an expression of the, the value and the worthiness of our God. Worship doesn't begin with us and end with God. It's easy to think that way about worship, isn't it? We know God's the end of worship. We're bringing it to him, but we often think it starts with us. So we have to create this gift in us to bring to him. No, friend, this is, worship is compelled. It starts with him, moves through us, and ends with him. It draws us like a bee to a flower to sing and rejoice and give ourselves and worship to him. Worship begins with God and ends with God. Worship is compelled. It's also public. True worship is public. This is what we see with Mary in verses 2 and 3. I believe Jesus is staying in their house. He certainly could have been found in a much less public scenario. If she's been thinking about this for weeks, I think she probably could have come up with a way to have the disciples and her brother and sister together and at a, a family meal of sorts to anoint Jesus with this perfume that she's been saving for this moment. But instead, she chooses this moment, this very public, very prominent moment to worship Jesus. This meal is kind of a who's who of those who have been healed by Jesus. There are an infinite number of those who have been touched by the healing hand of Christ, but at this meal are some of the most prolific of all of his acts of mercy. If you doubt me on that, look down at verses 9 through 11. I referenced this already, but when the Jews come out from Jerusalem, they come to see Jesus in part on account of who? Lazarus. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. He's, He's one of the greatest trophies of the power of Jesus. They want to see this man with their own eyes that was brought out of the tomb. It's not just Lazarus who's here at this meal, however. I already told you, Mark 14 says that Simon the leper hosted this meal. We don't know who Simon is. Simon is a very common name in Jewish culture, first century Jewish culture. But his, the way he's known, his nickname is 
Simon the leper. Well, guess what? You know this. But if you had leprosy in first century Judaism, you were out of circuit. You did not have a home. You called people to and hosted a meal for the great teacher. No, you know what happened here. The fact that he's hosting the meal in his home and is called Simon the leper means that part of his legacy is he was healed from leprosy by Jesus. Which is an astonishing, astounding reality because leprosy was incurable. It was a death sentence. You got leprosy, you were shooed out from away from everybody so you didn't give it to anyone else and you lived the rest of your days in isolation in a leper colony away from circulation. So Lazarus and then Simon, a big trophy of Jesus' accomplishments. On top of that, I already told you, he just went through Jericho and on the day before this, he was confronted with Zacchaeus and then with a blind beggar crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord. Quiet, leave him alone. The teacher has no use for you. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord. What's he asking, Jesus said? He's calling for you. Call him here. Lord, have mercy on me. He heals him. And the text goes out of its way to say, Bartimaeus gets up and follows Jesus. He's going to the feast. He probably hasn't been there in decades since he was last able to see. The Passover's happening. I've been healed by the great teacher. He's going to Jerusalem. I'm going with. I don't know if he's there among the crowd, but I guess, I would guess he is. This is a a who's who of those who have been touched by the power of Jesus Christ. And in that scene, Mary steps forward with courage and awe, knowing that everyone there will see her and her worship of our Lord. Not maybe sure exactly what's going on in the moment, but quickly able to smell the aroma of the perfume. Mark and Matthew say that she broke the bottle. You know how perfume bottles are. They give you one little drop at a time. She broke the neck of it so she could pour it out on Jesus. Matthew and Mark say she started with with his head, anointing him as a king, and then moved to his feet, anointing him as servant of all. Everyone saw Mary doing this. That's a big deal already, but think of it in the context of what's happening. Jesus is the the most notorious of men in Jerusalem. The chief priests have a warrant out for his rest. If, If you were associated with Jesus, you were supposed to turn him in to the chief priests. It was risky to be his friend in the same house with him, at the same meal with him, much less to give your life's treasure in worship of him. Mary is here not just worshiping Christ through an expensive gift. She is worshiping Christ through identity. I'm his follower. He's my Lord. This worship of Jesus obviously started in Mary's heart. It was private before it was ever public, but you must know that true worship can never stay contained in the heart. Friend, if Jesus is as great as he he truly is, and if you see it to be so, then you cannot help but make your worship public. You cannot help but declare the glory of Christ. Your mouth will be quick to declare his goodness, his greatness, and his majesty. Worship is not tinsel that we put on our tree to decorate it so that we look like good Christians. Worship is the fruit of a heart full of Christ, compelled by and drawn to and overwhelmed by the greatness and glory of Christ. So I ask you this morning, how is your worship Do you know this pull on your heart? This this one that will not let go of you. The the pull, the the magnetism of Christ that that sucks you away from your own navel-gazing. Looking constantly at yourself, wanting to see yourself in the mirror more and more and drawn to the absolute, infinite majesty of our Lord. And if you are, does this express itself publicly? You must know that we don't always feel this way. 
as a matter of personal testimony from me, preaching is itself confessional, meaning you can't handle the word of God and then proclaim the word of God without proclaiming some of yourself. In many ways, I try to do that intentionally so that you see that my struggle to love and know and honor Jesus is as real as yours. Those last two days have been brutal for me in worshiping Christ. I just haven't wanted to. Can I say that from the pulpit? I just haven't wanted to. It's not that I wanted to chase after idols and do all the kind of crazy, awful, stupid things. I don't know what I wanted, and I don't know what was wrong. I really don't. I searched my heart and scoured my soul and asked the Lord to show me what is wrong with me. Why don't I want to serve you? Why don't I want to sacrifice for you? I don't, even to this moment, know exactly what it was. So know that this is not always how it is. But I knew from studying this text and from others that the answer to that problem was not here in me. There was self-evaluation needed. There was a work of the Spirit to draw me out of myself. But the answer to this was Christ. I I was seeing too much of me. I needed more of Christ. I, I was too full of me. Therefore, unwilling to sacrifice, to serve. I needed more of Jesus. And when you see him, you can't help but worship him. You are belittled rightly. And he is exalted rightly. And you are compelled to publicly declare his glory. True worship is also costly. It's also costly. John says that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, some translations translate that as spike nard. It's a, an extract from the spike and the root of a flower from northern India. That's saying something before planes, trains, and automobiles to get a perfume from northern India all the way to Palestine. This is going to shock you, but I'm no perfume connoisseur. But from what I understand, it takes thousands of leaves or roots, as it were in this case, and many days, months, sometimes years, to extract these fragrances, these oils and minerals from these plants and craft a perfume, an ointment that has this overwhelmingly good smell. It's an amazingly long and delicate and intricate process left to the best of the best in their field and this perfume of Mary's expression of worship is the best of the best. John says it was undiluted, it was was pure. He uses a word that is related to our word for faithful. It was genuine and true. It it had no complexities to it. Nothing was brought into it from outside. It was unadulterated. It was genuine and true. John says that Mary brought a pound worth of this stuff. That's 12 ounces of, of liquid perfume. It's like a pop can worth of liquid, liquid perfume. We know from Judas's objection that the estimated value of this perfume was 300 denarii. You probably have a footnote in your text telling you that that's about a one day's wage for a common laborer. So 300 days wages for a common laborer. That's a year's worth of salary for a common worker. Take out Sabbaths and feast days, that's a year's worth of pay. No wonder Judas objected. The average salary of a a common worker in Newton, Kansas is about $67,000 in today's money. This perfume bottle is worth 67 grand. It was a costly expression of Mary's love and devotion to our Lord. I want to be careful here because I don't want you to hear me saying that all of your worship must look like this. It certainly must not. We, we've done enough study and other texts on worship to know that it doesn't always have to look like this. In fact, most of your expressions of worship won't look like this. Most of them will be much more common and general and normal in the normal means of grace as you live in fellowship with Christ. This is a unique moment in human history, one that will never be repeated. And Mary is put in a unique spot where she has the ability and the opportunity to do something never to be repeated, and that's to perfume the physical body of our Lord before his death. 
It was a timely act and it was a timeless act. One we cannot repeat and one that no one else has. But I still think we can draw a truism about worship from what Mary does here. And that truism is that all worship is sacrificial and therefore costly. All worship is giving up something of our own for our Lord as an expression of how valuable we think he is, of how worthy we think he is. So Hebrews calls our praise and our thanksgiving sacrifices to the Lord. It takes something. You have to, you have to put aside something to bring praise and thanksgiving to God. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul describes the, the resources of the Corinthian church that they're going to sacrifice in giving generously to the needs of Palestine. And he, he makes them aware that that will come out of the sufficient supply of the Lord. It's all from the Lord and for the Lord. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, sacrificing for one another as an act of worship to our Lord. Romans 12.1 cuts through all of the noise and gets right to the core of the issue and says, you must lay down your lives as a living sacrifice. And then it ends the, the phrase, rooted in mercy, because of the mercy of God, do this. What does it call it? Your reasonable act of worship. This is the most logical thing you can do in light of the mercy and grace given to you through Christ. That is to sacrifice in worship your whole life to God. So we do this with our favorite sports teams or our favorite hobby. We sacrifice our time or our money or our investment. We give up other responsibilities to focus on them and give time to them and energy to them. Why? Because in some way they're valuable to us. We enjoy them. They, they fill us. We delight in them. They're valuable. So I ask you, how much more ought this be true with our Lord? Is your worship of our Lord costly? Can you make in this moment a mental list of the things that you sacrifice to declare your love and devotion for Christ? All worship is costly. All worship also is humble in verse 3. That's what we see in Mary. The text tells us that after she anointed the feet of Jesus, she let down her hair to wipe his feet. I told you already, Matthew and Mark said she anointed his head first. That's because they're emphasizing the kingship of Jesus. It's in the context of, of Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. They're not trying to be literally chronological in their accounts. So they take this anointing at the feast on Saturday and they plant it in the account of Tuesday, and particularly of the chief priests asking, how are we going to arrest Jesus? And you read it in Matthew 26, Mark 14. What happens is they spin the narrative back to the account of Judas seeing what happened with Mary anointing the head of Jesus with this expensive oil. And then it says he determined at that point to betray Jesus to the authorities. He left from there. He made a deal with them for 30 pieces of silver. He would turn over Jesus when the crowd was not present. In John's gospel, he's emphasizing the servant reality of Jesus as servant of all, as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Mary anoints Jesus from head to toe. We get from both Matthew, Mark, and John, showing he is completely and totally worthy of, of every ounce of this costly anointing and that it was in preparation for the sacrifice he was about to make which was not just his head or his feet it was all of him for all of our redemption but John wants you to know that Mary's act sets Jesus apart as humble as a servant ready to sacrifice himself for us Remember that this is a very public moment, that Mary is very influential. She's highly respected in Jerusalem and Bethany. And here she comes with this very humbling deed, washing the feet of another, which was reserved for the servants of the house to do. Not only that, but using this expensive ointment to do it. And as she gets to his feet, and I don't know how this goes, we're not told why she felt compelled to wipe off his feet. Maybe there was more there than it was pooling or running off. I don't know. But she lets down her hair 
and uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now, that in any culture is a bridge too far for most people. That's embarrassing. That's humbling. That's condescending. But in Jewish culture, for a woman to let down her hair in public is not just embarrassing, it's shameful. You would not be caught as a Jewish woman in public without your head covered and your hair in order. She let down her hair. Maybe she didn't think to bring a towel. Maybe she premeditated doing this with her hair. I don't know. Is All I know is that in all humility, she undid her hair and wiped his feet clean. Friend, this is completely self-effacing for Mary. This is embarrassing and shameful in the culture's eye. But she has no concern for herself here. She has no concern what others think about her act of worship. If they are upset about it or mad about it, she is completely caught up in the worth and the value of her Lord. She is humbled and Jesus is therefore exalted. This will lay the groundwork for what Jesus does in chapter 13. You know that text, right? We're not there yet, but you know it. Jesus at the Last Supper, as the disciples are gathered around to eat the the Passover meal, none of his disciples are willing to serve each other, but what does Jesus do? He dons the towel of the servant and he goes and he washes all of their feet. None of them are willing to be a servant like Mary was, but Jesus himself is servant of all. Don't you think some of them in that moment, as Jesus washed their feet at the Last Supper, so... Mary's anointing is Saturday. The Lord's Supper is Thursday. Don't you think at least one of them thought, man, Mary just did this to our Lord and here he is washing my feet. What is wrong with me? Why did I not think to serve him like Mary did? Rebuked by their selfish pride. Don't you think they also got the message all the more that to worship Christ, they were gonna have to be humble So too with you, brother or sister, to worship Christ, you must humble yourself before him. True worship is a lowering of self and an exalting of Christ. That's why the weekly rhythm of gathering with God's people to publicly worship is so important for your soul. Because you need to be reminded by this gathering and in this gathering and in what we do in this gathering that you are small and God is big. That you are little and God is great. That you are a sinner and God is gracious and holy and just. You need the rhythm of that constant reminder, placing yourself in position to worship our God. This worship also is controversial, verses 4 through 6. This true worship often is. What we see in Judas' reaction to Mary, we'll talk more about how this sets up the triumphal entry next week, but John reminds us that Judas was one of the disciples of Jesus and that he was about to betray Jesus. You know, the gospel writers never talk about Judas without saying he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Just like this story about Mary will be told about her everywhere the gospel is spread, Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 10. Mary's name will be associated with true worship and Judas's name will be associated with betrayal. And denial. Matthew and Mark put this account of the anointing in the context of Judas going to betray Jesus. What happens here seals the deal for Judas. He can't take it anymore. He can't stand Jesus anymore. Drawn by the lure of his power, now pushed away by the reality of his mercy and grace, his humility and his willingness to die for his own. When he sees Mary worship in this way, he says, I am done. Now, to be fair to Judas, he's not the only one shocked by what Mary does. Matthew tells us that the other disciples were mad at her. Literally, they flared their nostrils at her, meaning it showed on their face they were that mad. They were hot mad at Mary. They couldn't believe she would do something like this for Jesus. What a waste! Mark tells us that many in the crowd questioned this act of worship. It was a controversial reality. But Judas speaks up as the one ready to betray Jesus and asks Jesus why this should have happened. 
What a polar opposite response from Mary. See how the, the light of Mary's worship throws quite the shadow as it shines on and exposes Judas's heart. And John tells us about that heart, doesn't he? He's the only gospel writer to do it. John tells us why Judas was so concerned about this. His concern was not for the poor. His concern was for his own greed. Being the treasurer of this traveling band, he kept the money box. He was the one who had charge of the money and could take of it as he saw fit. Can you imagine a scenario where all of a sudden Judas shows up at the next disciples meeting with a new robe? Like, hey, Judas, where'd you get that? Oh, yeah, somebody gave it to me. Do you, you imagine the, the things that John looked back on in Judas's life in and around Jesus and could see evidence of his thievery of the money box of the disciples? But here he feigns concern for the poor to hide his own greed. Compassion for those in need often masks the wicked intentions of those who have a voice. This, frankly, is often what happens with politicians in our day, church leaders in our day, I would say, as well. Often using the poor and the destitute to act as though they have compassion on those who are in need when in reality they're doing absolutely nothing to help those in need and they're using the poor to advance themselves and get what they want. Greed masked by compassion. Greed cannot coexist with worship. Friend, greed cannot coexist with worship. Part of the reason you may not feel compelled to worship Christ is because you're harboring greed in your heart. You're discontent with God and his providence. You want something he has not yet given you. You see a path that you can obtain what he has not yet provided for you. And so you're seeking it of your own will and by your own power. You're rebelling against God in your heart, seeking your own way while masking it with devotion to Christ. And one of the ways you'll know that's true is that you will not truly worship Christ. Greed and worship cannot coexist. As J.C. Ryle said, a cold heart and a stingy hand will generally go together. A cold heart and a stingy hand will generally go together. Jesus said that. You cannot love your money and God at the same time. You cannot serve God and your stuff. It's either or. It's one or the other. Judas clearly loved money more than he loved Jesus, and that's the heart of his complaint. And Mary's sacrifice makes no sense when it's calculated with dollar signs, does it? Apply human reasoning to John 12, 3, and it makes no sense. Calculated with our way of thinking and according to our concerns, it makes no sense. But when viewed in com comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ, it all falls in place. Beloved, this ought to be true for you as a Christian. Your life really should only make sense in light of the surpassing worth of Christ. There should be things about you that are, are so different from those who are not in Christ that will never make sense to them. Why do you give so much time to fill in the blank? Why do you find ways to be generous with your income and, and aren't able to do this that the rest of the world does? Why do you take your vacation from work and, and go on a missions trip or serve at VBS? Why are you always going to gather with the body of Christ? There, there should be things about you that don't make sense unless they're seen with Christ at the center of your life. This worship also then is proper. It's proper. Jesus' reaction to that lavish act of worship and to Judas's objection is to defend Mary. He doesn't expose Judas's hidden motive, even though he most certainly knows it. See his wisdom here. The focus is not Judas, but Mary. He defends her. He counters what Judas has said. He lets Judas be Judas. And he says what is needed here, that her lavish display is pointing to my coming burial. Verse 7, frankly, is hard to figure out. Does it mean that, that Mary had been saving it 
and knew that his burial was soon coming, so she anointed him? Or does it mean that, that Mary did this lavish act of worship and it prepared him for his burial even though she didn't know that? I don't know. I think she didn't know the fullness of what she did. She had some premeditation. She understood something about the value of Christ, but she didn't know the fullness. And so Jesus points to the fullness and says what she has done here points ahead to a greater thing that she does not fully understand. And then he points them all to the reality that you'll always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me with you. In other words, there's a once in a human history moment here. And Mary saw the opportunity and took advantage and didn't miss it. Friend, the lesson for us is that you cannot worship God too much. We like to think of worship as perfume. Dab it on our lives. Kind of let it be a little bit of the aroma we take with us. But for Mary, it was, it was everything. Christ was everything. Mark describes her gift as what she had, she did. He says it that way. This is everything to Mary. What she had, she did here. You cannot overestimate the worth of God and the worthiness of your worship to him. If you give everything to him in worship, you must know he is worthy and worthy of so much more. Jesus defends Mary here. Mark and Matthew tell us more. They say that Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, that story will be told in honor of Mary. Mary's act is forever commended to us because it's fitting and proper to Jesus. It's also commended by Jesus and so closely associated to the gospel of Jesus because it's a display of gospel truth, isn't it? Isn't what Mary did here a picture of, of the gospel itself? That Jesus himself was broken and spilled out as he points to his own burial. He's, he's pointing to this act of worship being a, a symbol that's about to be fulfilled. Redeemed his own because he gave himself for us. Mary's sacrificial worship also ought to always be remembered because it's a picture not just of Jesus' sacrifice for us but because of our sacrifice needed for him. What Mary does with this bottle is what must be true of every follower of Christ. Being willing to be broken and poured out in service to Christ, for he alone is worthy. It's proper and it's fitting. So beloved, how's your worship today? Is it marked by being compelled by the grace of God? Is it public and costly and humble and somewhat controversial and yet fully proper and fitting. May God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are worthy of all of our worship. Thank you for accomplishing such a great deed and being such a great God that your value and worth are beyond our estimation. We pray that you would fill us with that kind of heart. That would see more of you and less of us. And would be willing like Mary to pour it all out in worship for you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.